as we prepare to dive into the first chapter of Daniel, um, there's some historical tidbits that I always like to understand before I go much deeper. Uh, one, Daniel is a major prophet. What makes him a major prophet? He wrote more than some of the other prophets. And that's the length of the book determines if it's a major or minor prophet. Um, he prophesied to the exile of Judah in Babylon, right? The book of Daniel is also considered an apocalyptic prophecy because Daniel wrote about and shared supernatural visions. There will be a test on this later, so please be writing everything down. Um, for many years, there was a consensus that Daniel was written by Daniel, and that wasn't argued. In later years, there was some doubt that Daniel wrote Daniel, mainly brought up by people who didn't like the fact that he wrote about supernatural visions. But that's okay. Regardless, we're, pretty, we're on pretty solid ground that Daniel wrote Daniel. The first chapter and chapters 8 through 12 were written in Hebrew. Chapters 2 through 7 in Aramaic. Did y'all know that? In the original? Today is all about history. Again, tests later, you will have it. The reason there is because the, the first part, first chapter in chapters 8 through 12, that concerned the Jews of the Old Covenant. Versus chapters 2 through 7, and that was dealing with the nations of the ancient Near East. And that's why it was written in the different languages of the time. All right, so Daniel, getting to him. He was born in Judah under King Josiah. And that's a good time to be born, and that's a good king to be born under. One of the very few good kings it was good to be born under in the uh, Old Testament. For King Josiah was a king who attempted to turn Judah back to the Lord. So let's talk a little bit about King Josiah. Josiah became king when he was eight. Do I have anybody here that's around eight years old? Imagine being made king. <laughs> that's a bit more ambitious ambitious than my eight-year-old activities, to be fair. But he was made, when he was eight years old, he was king. In 2 Kings 22, in case you want to look that up, we learn that he reigned for about 31 years. And unlike his father, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Have you ever heard that phrase before? He did not turn, he did not turn aside to the right or to the left? That's a very powerful phrase that I think sometimes we skip over, uh, especially as we're spending all the time that we spend in First and Second Kings, or perhaps we don't spend enough time in those books. But First and Second Kings is rife with kings doing evil in the Lord's sight, some sons trying to reform from the acts of their fathers, while some did even worse things. Josiah, however, did not stray he did not turn to the right or to the left, which implies he chose to remain focused on the Lord. May we be a people that others say we remained focused on the Lord. We did not turn to the right or to the left. So in the 18th year of his reign, a scroll was discovered while the temple was being renovated. Okay, so quick aside. My job... I work with churches, congregations, all across the country, evaluating their facilities. And so this little section always perks my ears up 
because the scroll was found because the king directed his secretary, Shaphan, to go up to the temple and tell the high priest to count the money collected and distribute it to the workmen who were repairing the temple. This is, for me, this is a king who understood the importance of prioritizing spending to repair and maintain what God entrusted to him and to the nation, taking care of deferred maintenance. That may not excite anyone else in this room but me. But it's great when I can go to churches and say, see, even Scripture says deferred maintenance is important to take care of. But the biggest thing is you have to and you should maintain what God has entrusted to you, whatever he has entrusted to you. Okay? When I work with places across the country, those that continually seek the next new thing, while they forego or ignore the deterioration of what they've been entrusted, those tend to be the congregations that are struggling. Be it people of building a community. When the Lord entrusts you with it, you should take care of it in a manner. And this is why I'm not always liked when I go to these places. Because I tell them, are you maintaining your facility in a manner that reflects how you feel about the Lord? And then they ask me to leave. And I go, okay. But that's how we should be. And that's what he was doing. So we go, let's go back to the scroll. Sorry, a little side there. The scroll was of the law, the perfect law that uh, handed down by God. When the king read it, what was his reaction? He said, hey, neato, cool history, bro. That's not what he said. I do paraphrase a lot, but that's not what he said. In 2 Kings 22, 11 through 13, we read that the king tore his clothes and sent his cabinet to inquire of the prophetess Huldah. So in verse 13, and I think we have it, 2 Kings 22, 13, there you go. Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. That's a pretty strong reaction, is it not, to hearing the word of the Lord? Holder revealed that he had caused to worry because the Lord was angry. But... She also revealed that the Lord heard Josiah's penitent heart and recognized he humbled himself before the Lord. As a result, it was prophesied that Josiah's eyes would not see the wrath of the Lord, would not see the wrath the Lord had planned, and would be gathered to his grave in peace. Notice that it was not prophesied that everything was all good now, and the people did not have to worry about the future. Josiah was penitent. And the Lord dealt with him accordingly. But the Lord's wrath was not turned aside from everybody. So just Josiah's reaction, he went to the streets. He had the book of the law read aloud to all the inhabitants, small and great, and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the law written on the scroll that was discovered. He had an immediate reaction, again, to hearing the word of the Lord and to taking it into his heart. And all the people joined the king in affirming the covenant. And they never made a mistake again, is not what happened. And so, but this was a massive house cleaning. All the idols were removed. The high places destroyed. The worship of false gods was stopped. He put to death the false priests of the high places, defiled all those places of false worship, and reinstituted the Passover. In 2 Kings 23, 25, it's written, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. 
according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Pretty powerful words written about King Josiah and his reaction to hearing the word of the Lord. So that's what Daniel was born into, that total return to the ways of the Lord with a clear understanding of the impact a choice makes. The king made it clear that he chose to pursue the Lord and his commands in all things. His choice to follow God meant that he was willing to destroy anything that was not of the Lord. Do you understand that? He was willing to destroy it, to put to death anything that was an abomination in the Lord's sight. He made this choice because he understood that the Lord's wrath, his anger, is real. It's not a euphemism. It's not a smack on the wrist. The Lord's wrath is real. And the Lord means it when he declares the consequences of turning aside from him or his plan. With the death of King Josiah in battle, the result of turning away from the Lord was now displayed again. So King Jehoaz did evil in the sight of the Lord. He was the next king. He lasted for about three months. Then Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, who was the son of Josiah, king and renamed him Jehoiakim. He reigned for about 11 years, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And guess what? It did not go well for the nation. Okay? So if this were a movie, everything that would have been just discussed, that's the flashback. And so now we see on the screen, present day, present day 609 BC, <laughs> okay? So that's where we're at. Daniel has seen the extreme contrast from a political, moral, and spiritual sense of choosing to serve the Lord or not. And I want to make it clear here, and I, I say it a lot in here, there is no gray area. You serve the Lord or you don't. You honor the Lord or you don't. If then. If you honor the Lord, the Old Testament is right with it, then he blesses you. If you dishonor the Lord, then he deals with you. There is no middle ground. So we've got to quit pretending that there is today. There's no justification. It's what the Lord says, and that's it. As we start in chapter 1, we can make some assumptions, and one of those assumptions is that Daniel decided and purposed in his heart that he would stay faithful to the Lord. It's also safe, I believe, in my mind, that Daniel's choice to follow God was made before being confronted with the new reality in Babylon. The worst time to plan your defense is in the midst of the enemy's attack, is it not? You know, the first time to go buy, you know, the worst time to buy an umbrella is in the hurricane, okay? You don't make your plans after the event already happens. So he purposed in his heart before the exile. Why would he do that? Well, one, the Lord doesn't lie. The Lord declared this was going to happen. So he knew and he prepared. So now let's jump into Daniel. So Daniel 1 Verses 1 through 2. So in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, 
and place the vessels in the treasury of his God. So let's be clear on this very first point in Daniel. This is very important. If you want to star anything, star this. Babylon was not victorious over Judah. I'm going to say that again. Babylon was not victorious over Judah. They didn't win anything based on their might at the time, though they were mighty, they were a big nation. They were given what they took by the Lord. Babylon did not defeat God's people. The Lord gave his people to the Babylonians. That's very important. There is nothing in this world that exists that is stronger than the Lord, that can defeat the Lord, that acts or accomplishes anything that is not in alignment with the Lord's design. Does that make sense? They did not win because God is in control. God's sovereignty does not end with only those who believe in him. He's sovereign over everything, whether you accept him or not. Now, we may not understand the immediate reality of what is occurring, and that's okay, um, because he doesn't need to seek our thoughts on his plan. As much as that's hard to believe and imagine, God does not need the opinion of Nathan on how he's doing things. He's got it. We can understand the why many times in hindsight, or if we listen to the words of the Lord, we can also get an inkling of what is coming. So let's look at another prophet, Isaiah 39, 5 through 7. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This was coming, this exile, because the Lord declared it. He said it. It's happening. Remember prayer and praise service in September? Anybody? I was there. Were you there? Habakkuk or Habakkuk. We talked about that, one or the other. But he declared it. He knew it was coming because the Lord declared it. He asked the Lord, what's happening? And the Lord said, this is going to happen. Now, we also know how it's going to end as well. People at this time, uh, Judah, they didn't, not to the extent that we do. But again, it's incredible, and we need to acknowledge it. We see this continuity of purpose from Genesis to Revelation as we study his word together. The Bible is not a series of books that just slam together. It's the living word of God, and you see his plan, Genesis to Revelation, and it's his plan, and it's about him, and that's it. So, Daniel was part of the first exiles brought to Babylon. There's three different times exiles were brought during this, this time. And not everything was removed at the time. The Lord left a remnant of people after the first one and some of the temple vessels. Um, and that created kind of an issue because in Jeremiah, again, Jeremiah, we see that part of God's plan at this point exposed some of the false prophets among the people. If you remember in Jeremiah, there was people saying, hey, don't worry about the stuff that got taken away. God's cool. He'll bring everything back. 
I'm paraphrasing. That's not exactly what it said in Jeremiah, but close, okay? And Jeremiah said, nope, that's not. The leaders wanted to tell the people what they wanted to hear, not what the Lord had declared concerning his people. Jeremiah 27, 16 through 18. Then I spoke to the priests and all those people saying, thus says the Lord, do not listen to the words of your prophets who are prophesying to you saying, behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. Do not listen to them, serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should the city become a desolation? If they are prophets and if the word of the Lord is with them, then let them intercede with the Lord of hosts, that the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord and the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem may not go to Babylon. They were false. Jeremiah said, don't listen to them. But unfortunately, we still see that today. The church universal is being led astray by words and messages from leaders that want the people to feel hope in things other than the Lord, and health, and finances, and prosperity, and being liked, and succeeding, and winning an argument online, things that have no relevance to what God expects of his children. Of the choice he expects from us as his children. Now stay tuned for the rest of that thought. I do bring it back at the end. So, fortunately, we know exactly what God expects of his children because he told us. He gave us his word and he told us very plainly what's important. We'll see that again at the end. So, stay tuned. You've got to keep with me. The false prophets, by the way, they were wrong. The false hope they tried to use as a foundation for living was destroyed. The same thing will happen to us if we choose to pin our hopes on the lies being talked today by some people. That all you need to do is be smart enough, be cool enough, or have this, that, and the other, and, and it's all good. I don't even know what that is half the time. But if it's not based on the Father, it's wrong. So, let's look, go back to Daniel now. Daniel 1. You didn't know this was going to be a Bible drill today, did you? All right. So, Daniel 1, 3 through 7. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, use without blemish, and good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego the Bible likes to make us trip over names a lot. Okay. Persians, do a little another history thing. Persians in this time period generally began educating their youth around 14 to 15 years of age. So Daniel and company were likely around that same age period. That age of that period. There you go. 
when they were brought to the king's palace. And again, from the text, we know these initial folks were intelligent. They were royal. They were noble. They were from the cool families. They were from the leaders. Because if you're going to try and subjugate conquered nations, there are a couple of ways, traditional ways of attempting it, of, of approaching it. Uh, the first one is you can institute harsh governance and force them to capitulate at the point of a sword. Or you can get them to become like you willingly. The first method is not as effective. And it's because when we're confronted with these extreme choices, we create kind of a, a mental out of sorts for ourselves. The thought that, oh man, that was bad, but I didn't have the choice because of how bad the other person was. That allows us to try and create a moral justification for why we chose the wrong path and to excuse ourselves and then maybe rally around changing things in the future. If you want to see the effects of that, if you study the choices of citizens of annexed nations in Europe, say around World War II time frame, you can see that people making these extreme choices that were wrong, but they tried to justify it because of their fear of the country that annexed them. I like history, so if anybody wants to read those books, I've got them at the house. Come on over. We'll have some coffee. We'll read. Okay? All right, the second method. That is the preferred method of the enemies of God. The enemy likes to befriend us and show us some alternatives they want us to consider. Right? Hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about this piece of fruit? Remember that? Started in the garden. What do you think about this? Did he really say that? Maybe you're smarter than you give yourself credit for. And we live today in a world where we have influencers. Y'all heard that term? That's ridiculous. But we live in this world today where people earn a living influencing the habits and thoughts of consumers. And the majority of the influencers are not influencing us in a way that is positive that is life-affirming, that is based on the Lord. They're influencing us and kids to destroy bathrooms for a TikTok challenge or to buy certain clothes, you know, pair of shoes for 100, you know, whatever. Do this, do that. Be who you want. Love everybody, regardless of what standards say. We'll get back to that. Don't like it. Don't like influencers. But that's what Babylon was doing here. That's what happened in our society today. Getting the cool kids while they were young enough to shape their thoughts and actions to the point that they turned from their ways and aligned themselves with the values of the Babylonians. They showered them with education and tasty food, with safety, security, with praise and servants and likes, and they went viral. And see what they're doing? The world who was off base tried to encourage them in pursuing that by telling them they're good if they do. All they had to do was choose Babylon over God. That's what our kids are being taught today. That's what we're being taught today. All you have to do is choose this viral thing over the Lord. All you have to do is that. You'll be cool if you do. Part of the process for the Babylonians was changing the names of the influencers to reflect Babylonian values. Because originally the names of Daniel and company 
What they meant were, okay, so Daniel was God is my judge. Ananiah was the grace of the Lord. Mishael is he that is strong, he that is the strong God. Azariah, the Lord is a help. Pretty cool names, right? The Babylonians changed them. So Belshazzar, what Daniel went to, was the keeper of the hidden treasures of Bel. False god. Shadrach, the inspiration of the sun, because the Babylonians participated in sun worship. Meshach, of the goddess Shak. Abednego, the servant of the shining fire. Again, fire worship. So this renaming of them in Babylon was a, is a literal attempt to take that which was dedicated to the Lord and claim it for the enemy. What the Babylonians did not understand in this process, however, was that Daniel and company made a stronger commitment to the Lord than any name that they could give them, anything that they would put on them. Their dedication to the Lord and His commands were more important to them than what the Babylonians called them. Their dedication to the Lord and His commands were so important that they said, call me whatever you want because it's not bigger than God. Okay? What a freedom that Daniel and company had that many of us struggle today, do we not? We get bombarded with this false message that we need to conform to the world and what the world wants to define as correct. The world wants us to seek their label for who we are. But family, we must help each other remember that we are to rest in being defined as who and what God says we are. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Okay? What about food? Everybody likes food, right? Let's look at Daniel 1, 8 through 16. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So again, now we see another Babylonian move to influence those they hope to be influencers, right? Tasty food. It almost seems funny that a follower of the Lord would turn from the Lord for a tasty meal. Or does it? Do we today perhaps turn from the Lord in small ways? Ways that we don't consider as turning away anymore? Ways, I don't know, maybe we gossip, maybe we skip gathering and worship to watch a game, to hunt. Perhaps we spend more time during the week excitedly sharing about the games 
the latest social media trend, the fill in the blank. Then we do choosing to be with the Lord, to be in His Word, to listen to His voice, and to live as He calls us. I don't know, maybe it's just me. But I think it's important to ask ourselves, what are we choosing to do over choosing the Lord? Daniel, however, chose to hold fast to God's direction before being tempted. The meat would not have been prepared in accordance with God's law. And the wine, more than likely, would have been dedicated to a false god. That is problematic for Daniel and his friends. The violation of God's law for his people regarding what they ate led Daniel to do something that believers struggle with today, myself included. Daniel was courteous while still being courageous. Daniel did not demand, harangue, or otherwise shame anyone regarding his values. Daniel asked to be excused from defiling himself. May I be excused? He was nice and asked permission to live out his conviction. God honored this and softened the heart of the chief of the eunuchs. The softening did not lead to the man losing his fear of the earthly king, right? But it did allow for the steward over Daniel and his friends to feel free enough to test the request. He was nice. We should not lose sight of that today. Courtesy is not the enemy of courage. Say again, courtesy is not the enemy of courage. We lose nothing if we are nice in our bid to follow the Lord. In fact, I'm going to tell you today, in my opinion, and I'm at here and with the mic, so you got to hear it anyway. In my opinion, we are called to be nice at all times because it's the Lord's prerogative to determine the time and manner in which things are made not nice. He determines what happens to his enemies, not us. We must remember that when people reject the Lord, they're not our enemies. Because ultimately, it's not about us. Okay, When someone rejects the Lord, they become his enemy. And he will deal with it. We should never presume to act on the Lord's behalf. Should he require our involvement? He will make it known. At that time, we get to choose to either obey or not. And that's just important to remember. When they reject the Lord, they're not our enemies. We're called to do what? To love them. Because it's the Lord's job to deal with his enemies. From this section in Daniel, we also see the importance of studying Scripture. Daniel really understands the law. He didn't balk at the name change or the education tracks of the Babylonians. While these were designed to sway and they meant something to the Babylonians, they didn't mean anything to Daniel because they didn't require Daniel to choose to believe or acknowledge that they were true, right? He's like, whatever. Daniel chose to believe, uh, excuse me, eating non-kosher foods that were dedicated to idols, that was against the law. That was what was important. We must know the scriptures intimately to fully understand what we need to reject calmly and firmly versus what we can set aside as irrelevant, okay? You can call me little Slappy Newton and tell me that the earth is shaped like a triangle if you want, okay? I'm not going to waste my time with that or fight too hard about it. As Abraham Lincoln has been quoted, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt, okay? But if you tell me I am wrong, if I proclaim that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father 
except through him, and that I should stop that or else, well, I guess I'm going to find out what else is. Because I'm not going to stop. Do we have a definitive list of what is irrelevant versus what is not? Not necessarily, and at times some things may appear to move from one side to the other. But again, this drives home the importance of studying Scripture. We need to make sure we fill our thoughts with the words and commands of the Lord, who is the same from the beginning to the end, from today, yesterday, and tomorrow. He is the standard that never shifts. And that's what we cling to. We also should consider how we can share our beliefs, as Daniel did. In verses 12 and 13, Daniel laid out a 10-day test. In that, those verses, he makes no prediction. Instead, he's confident that following God will have an obvious observable advantage over not following him. He left it up to the Babylonians to judge. We can see this manner of calm confidence in choosing the Lord in later chapters. Daniel and company, they were confident when they followed the Lord. I pray that we can have the confidence of Daniel to follow the Lord, allow the testing of our faith, and be so confident in the outcome that we allow our enemies to judge the result. That's confidence, is it not? And I don't want to leave this section without drawing attention back to the first part of verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. When you see the word resolved, it is good to understand that Daniel thought through this and decided on a course of action before he was confronted with the choice. While not explicit in the text, it's safe to say that if the Babylonians refused the request to test Daniel and company, they would have chosen not to eat and accepted whatever consequence would occur. We see that in later chapters. Because they were resolved to fear the Lord more than any earthly worry. There was nothing in Babylon that they feared because they chose to remain focused on the Lord. Are you resolved today? Where's your resolve? So Daniel 1, 17 through 21, kind of tells us the result. As for these four youths, God gave them the learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. God gave them. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So all four of these men were top of the class. They shared valedictorian. Well, Daniel was valedictorian. He got a little extra measure. The others shared salutorian. Salutorian? Okay, one, and then everybody shared two. He granted that extra measure to Daniel regarding understanding and dreams and visions. And this, that was not Daniel bragging about the extra measure he received. Far from it. Daniel is telling us in this first chapter that everything they gained, every favor, every accolade that was to come came from one thing alone, choosing to serve the Lord. It came from the Lord. God gave them everything they needed to be who he called them to be. They just had to choose him. Even King Nebuchadnezzar found them to be better than the other magicians and enchanters, and, in, and this is important, 
in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of him. Okay, so why is this important? Why do I, why do I focus on that? Okay, at this point in Daniel, it's not apparent to the king how much more Daniel and company can lead than the rest of the magicians and enchanters. The king only understands that they're smart cookies based on what the king understands, okay? King Nebuchadnezzar still had a worldly understanding. Knowing this is important because God was not finished with his plan yet. It wasn't time to expose Babylon to the full sovereignty and power of the Lord. God's timing is still supreme, and an enemy of the Lord will see the truth when the Lord chooses to reveal it to him. The king saw an earthly view and thought Daniel and company were smart because of their training. It was yet to be revealed to him that they were powerful because of who God is. It was not about them. It was about God. And while it's not explicitly discussed in Daniel 1, I must wonder about the other exiles brought with Daniel and company. Surely there were more than four cool kids to influence, right? My fear is that the exiles brought with Daniel, and again, I think that there were more than just three, were influenced and swayed by the Babylonian world around them. They were willing to sell out for a fancy meal. How does that impact us? Well, I liked what Herman Veldkamp wrote in his book. Y'all know Herman Veldkamp, right? Old wacky Herman. Uh, theologian. Uh, he wrote in his book, Dreams and Dictators, book of Daniel. The danger is this, that we derive the norms for our thought and conduct, not from the scriptures, but from the world. These two sets of norms are completely opposed to each other. Forgiving our neighbors again and again, regarding our brothers and sisters as better than ourselves, praying for our enemies and business competitors, treating others as we would have them treat us. All these things are the dietary regulations of the church. They are the bread and water on which the church subsists. So where are we deriving our norms? From social media, from the internet, from news, movies, people's leaders, the loudest person in the room? From our peer group with whom we feel comfortable? Or are we seeking the bread of life and the living water? That is to say, are we seeking Christ to declare the norms by which we are to live? Seeking Christ to define our standards is the only rational response to the sins prevalent in the world today. As believers, we should always stand as a counterpoint to the values of the world in which we live. When we choose God over the world, it makes us an enemy of the world. An enemy of all who reject the truth of God. Our strength, however, is not in our ability to beat non-believers into compliance, or tempt them into compliance, or exile them into compliance, or to a relationship with the Lord. Those are the tactics of the world. Our strength is knowing that in all things, there's only one choice that matters. The choice we are called to make when we heard the reply of Jesus when the scribe asked, which commandment is the most important of all? In Mark 12, 29-31, we get the answer. Jesus answered. Remember I told you I was coming back to this. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, 
The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. That's the only choice that matters. Loving the Lord our God with all that we are in all circumstances and loving each other as ourselves without ceasing. 